91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. In August, Michael Quest Moore, a leader of the organization Take Em Down NOLA, spoke at a virtual event hosted by Project Pilgrimage. Take Em Down NOLA advocates for the removal of symbols to white supremacy, such as statues and place names celebrating Confederate leaders. I want to tell you a little bit about Take Em Down NOLA, the coalition that uh, I co-founded five years ago. A lot of whose work is really relevant and, of course, on the front lines right now. We're seeing it pop off all over the, the country, um, all over the world even. And it's been a global movement against symbols and systems of white supremacy. So it's something we're always excited and passionate about making happen here, but we're even more so now that we see um, that fire being caught all over the planet. Um, I'm gonna start with a poem. I'm a poet, I find my way to organizing by way of the word, the power of the spoken word. You know, I always like to uplift that, the power of speaking our own intuitive truths, even in the face of uh, systemic lies and what seems like uh, it's sometimes insurmountable and things that seem like they're way too big for us to take on. But sometimes just by speaking that truth, sharing it with somebody else that fills you and y'all build our community together, y'all build out, you know, you organize it together, y'all can take down, you know, some of the most Goliath of structures that are designed to oppress us and, and rob us of our humanity by honoring humanity through your truth. This is something I wrote back in 2014, about a year before we started organizing around removing white supremacist symbols. And it was a highlight moment for me that, you know, um, made me see the, how this thing was so pervasive and had to, be, had to be attacked. So, story goes like this. I'm touring the Texas state capitol. My small brown body was cast against the canvas of tall white coliseums and things was reaching back centuries. I'm dwarfing in the bleached shadows of their history. With small brown bodies like mine, but minor details in a portrait of American destiny manifest only in the margins as footnotes on the pages of recorded history. But right now, right now, my thoughts are of Brianna. Brianna of light Latina hue and American college girl humor. She is a walking library of white supremacist mythology trapped in a mausoleum of mestizo skin, Brianna. Knowledgeable tour guide who just walked me and some 30 visitors through the pristine halls of the state capitol, the jokes. They glint off of her tongue with irony, her commentary. It clashes with her culture as she speaks of Texas history and a possessive. We were defeated in the Battle of the Alamo in 1836, she says. We rallied back six weeks later and won the Battle of San Jacinto, thereby founding the great state of Texas, she continues. And I keep trying to figure out how she managed to fit all her light brown me Inside of all that Western white we, how she can so easily mince memories of moccasin shoe mamas beneath the steel toes and steers of Lone Star boots now walking across the marble floors of her oppressor's history as she speaks. There's a festival going on on the front lawn of the Capitol. Her voice struggles to be heard above the booming bass lines of ragged tone rhythms blaring from the speakers outside. And I can't help but wonder if the cognitive dissonance inside her head doesn't blare just as loudly. There are women, many of them are Brianna's hue, dancing to her people's music. I think they're doing Zumba or the Macarena or something that English words fail to do justice. And I'm struggling to see how she fails to see the injustice in the story she's been paid to propagate. And can she hear her ancestral rebuttal thumping through the drums as they echo through the halls of the Texas state capital, Brianna? Can you hear your ancestors calling? At the end of the tour, an elderly white woman asked Brianna, what does the word Texas mean? And she quickly replies, it's a Caddo Indian word for friendship. 
and I immediately want to look up the word friendship and see if there's anything I missed. Perhaps there are etymological references to blood splattered chieftains and trails of tears. Maybe, maybe these are key ingredients to lifelong bonds and I'm the oblivious one, or maybe, maybe Texas, like Louisiana, like America, like all of the Western wide world is just a really messed up friend. The kind of vice grips your bones and just handshake into your bones, a ground to dust and remains left to mix with the blood and sweat of capital gains to form the watered down colors that they use to paint the monuments to their greatness. They'll shade you into their shadows, etch your name into the edges of their borders. It's footnote, loser of the battle, vanquished, full turn mascot, misguided, tore God through the halls of another man's history, never its foundation. It's keep up this land before a hostile takeover, it's blood rights to this ground before oil rate, Texas. If you are friendship, then what do I call my enemies? I wrote that in 2014, the Black Lives Matter movement kicked off uh, for us locally um, that very same year. And just making that connection between um, state-sanctioned violence and a state that celebrates white supremacy um, and the literal uh, people who sanctioned that violence and wrote it into policy and wrote it all into uh, the institutions that still govern the way we live um, those connections weren't lost on me, but that was because of a lot of uh, uh, teaching that I got from elders in my community. We'll learn about all of them in just a second. So let's get into it. So speaking of elders, we just celebrated one of our greats yesterday, one of my literary godfathers, James Baldwin. He gave us this little nugget right here. He said, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it from, we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. People are trapped in history and history is trapped in them. That's especially precinct, and it really applies to now because we're living in a crossroads in time where all the antiquated colonial narratives of yesteryear, even though they're trapped inside of us and unconsciously control so much of what we do, they are literally crumbling under the pressure of our collective resistance at this moment. And all it takes is vision, expansive enough to see the virus of white supremacist capitalist uh, oppression for exactly what it is, precise enough to properly diagnose it and courageous enough to push back against it. Jimmy gave us that wisdom through his word way back when, and that's another reason we invest in the power of the word. So to that end, I wanna share with you one more um, poetic vision. Um, this one came from another poetic um, big dog, a big homie, big brother, what have you. His name is Saul Williams. And at the end of his first movie called Slam, he walks up uh, to, the, to the edge of the Washington Monument, right? And when he walks up to it, he walks up slowly and gently and just places his hand against the backdrop of, of the screen, right? And that's it, the movie fades to black after that, the end. Just a small black hand raised against a 555 foot white phallic symbol. It was just a small visionary act of resistance and I didn't understand it when I first looked at it. But years later, when I learned the value and the significance of symbols in public places, I came to understand exactly what Saul was trying to get across to us. I'd eventually read a, a book called um, The ISIS Papers by uh, a black psychologist, behavioral scientist named Frances Cress Welsing. You might be familiar with her work from the movie Baby Boy if you ever watched it. Um, in her book, she basically serves a model diagnosis of white supremacist symbols from guns to you know, pillars to everything. She qualifies symbols as quote, entities that carry highly compacted messages pertaining to the origin, identity, and survival of individuals and collective peoples. So what did that have to do with the Imogen Saul Williams movie Slam or white supremacy at large for that matter? But the obelisk basically um, of the Washington Monument is also a phallic symbol. 
It essentially represents white male patriarchy, which is at least one of the underlying forces beneath what we know as white supremacy. So you look at the heteropatriarchy, some of this stuff might, you might not recognize the terms I'm using, feel free to write it down as a question. You can talk about it later. But um, furthermore, about this symbol of patriarchy of male power and dominance, to make it worse, it's not only uh, asserting that, but it's also a certain you know, white uh, co-optation uh, because the obelisk itself was co-opted from our ancient Egyptian ancestors. It's their obelisks, which were originally called Tekken on the Nile Valley, uh, commemorate the mythology of Isis and Osiris. They represented what's called the original Osirian drama, as it was originally called. Obelisk also symbolized the stability and creative force of the sun god, Ra, who is a male god, and the phallic nature of their design represents male energy. So the Washington Monument created by white men in the center of America's capital, Washington, D.C., standing taller than any Egyptian obelisk ever created, not only represents white male energy, but dominance and also a co-optation of age-old African symbolism. Now, among um, the many jewels that Dr. Isis drops in the paper, uh, she also says this one right here that you're looking at. It's not without significance that the Washington Monument, as a phallic symbol, towers over the predominantly black population in the capital city of the most powerful government in a global white supremacy system. Now, it might seem like a bit of a stretch right now, but I wanted us to zoom out that wide and large, not just to get some insight into my own personal entry into this conversation about white supremacist symbols, but so that we, as, uh, as we zoom in on more recent history and on my hometown in New Orleans, Louisiana, for example, we could properly diagnose how vast, how age old this conversation about white supremacist symbols and places truly is. Colonizer culture has been laying down its mark in very covert, direct and overt, indirect ways since the inception of so-called Western civilization. It's been codifying its imperialism since Greece invaded Egypt millennia ago, and since Rome followed them and stole 13 obelisks from Egypt and placed them in the Roman Empire. In the Caribbean, the region first colonized by Western expansion and where the uh, first enslaved Africans were originally bought, that campaign of imperialistic symbolism continues today in the form of statues of Christopher Columbus all over the place. Christopher Columbus is, of course, the original pirate, thief, rapist, murderer, of the colonial and imperial era, still standing in several public squares. When I spoke there a few years ago at uh, Trinidad, Tobago, I learned um, that most of the monuments to Columbus were erected between 1880 and 1930. Now that was done with intention because the white supremacist capitalists of that day had to valorize their colonial era ancestors in order to validate the next era of Western imperialism ushered in by the industrial age. So in other words, to make themselves look good um, as, they, as they went around, you know, uh, continuing the project of colonization by capitalizing on people's resources and using them for industry, they needed something to, you know, uphold themselves. And so they took Columbus and put him on a pedestal. The irony is Columbus died a broke failure, and even amongst the people that would eventually put him on pedestals, he was not highly esteemed. He wasn't even respected. Um, and yet here it was, that propaganda was projected on working class white folks, black and brown folks, so we could believe in this myth of white supremacy. Discovering that um, really struck a chord with me because it made me think of a similar campaign that took place around the same time period in the American South where I live. So in the United States, there are over 1,500 monuments to the Confederate Army of the American Civil War, um, which took place, of course, between 1861 and 1865. And in that war, the Confederate Army, as we know, fought to keep slavery. When they lost, they promptly spawned a movement right after called the Cult of the Lost Cause. So it's literally saying what it is. Um, it existed for the sole purpose of commemorating their Confederate ancestors that lost the war. Most of the Confederate monuments that exist in America are in the South, and they primarily come up between the years of 1900 to 1920. That's important because that's the era of Jim Crow. That's the era of post-Reconstruction. This is when 
A lot of legislation was passed to keep black people as second class citizens. And yet, a few decades later, when we clap back during the civil rights era, that is exactly when um, the white supremacists and Confederate monuments saw their second big upturn. So this was an obvious response to the progression towards equal rights that black people had attempted to make and did successfully achieve during that time. So while global white supremacy was using symbols to validate its global conquest, Southern white supremacy was erecting them to maintain control in the American South, where they no longer held the same power to enslave black people, but they still wanted black people to know who was in charge, economically and otherwise. So it's important to note that while monuments were being constructed to preserve psychological violence towards black people, that campaign merely enforced the physical violence and socioeconomic violence that we were forced to endure. Of course, we were living as second-class citizens under Jim Crow, didn't have the job opportunities and what have you because of segregation. And worse yet, between 1877 and 1950, during that era of Jim Crow, there were over 4,000 lynchings of black people in the United States. You can look up Equal Justice Initiative if you want to get more insight and information on that, that research. Um, so that happens during that time period. That's nearly a week. That's nearly one, uh, you know, black killing one lynching a week for almost a century. And that's just the ones we know about. If the research is actually done, it would probably be way higher. Um, meanwhile, the year 1877 is a crucial one for black folks in America because it's the very first year that we existed outside of the era of reconstruction, which lasted directly after the Civil War from 1866 to 1876. During that time, black people in the US saw more political and socioeconomic progression than we ever had in our history. There were black politicians, business owners, black sovereignty, and black communities saw unprecedented success. In New Orleans, we presented the U.S. its first black lieutenant governor, which is saying a lot because New Orleans to this day, as I'll talk about later, um, lives, you know, in dire straits. We have a 53% poverty rate. Y'all have probably heard a lot of the stories about crime that results from that poverty in this city. And yet, with the resources directly after the um, Civil War, we were forebearers. We were, we were uh, pioneers, groundbreakers. As we've been on a lot of issues of civil rights. And we presented the world its first uh, black lieutenant governor. And of course, because of white supremacist terror and oppression, a lot of those, those uh, advances have been set back. Now, Oscar Dunn um, was an erudite petition, uh, politician. He dies at 45 years old due to what rumors say was poisoned by white elites who envied him. And while that can't be proven, what is indeed a fact is that directly following his death, white elites in the city made caricatures of him at that year's Mardi Gras masquerade ball, and they costumed as gorillas, basically just to degrade his namesake. A monument that was originally supposed to be made to Dunn was instead replaced for a monument to Robert E. Lee. So if that's not irony, I don't know what is. This uh, pedestal to a white supremacist was literally supposed to send the exact opposite message. But upon, um, upon Robert Dunn's death, and only about 10 years later, Robert E. Lee was put there in play instead. Robert E. Lee, general of the Confederacy, and a man who, just like Columbus, the places in the Caribbean, uh, was venerated, but he never set foot in New Orleans. The same way that Columbus never set foot in certain parts of the Caribbean to still bear his uh, statue. In 1884, his 16-foot statue was put atop the 68-foot pedestal a phallic column, again, in the middle of the city, and it angled towards the north in a symbolic act of defiance against the northern states that defeated the south in the Civil War. Another gross injustice that occurred during Reconstruction was the swift, violent reaction of Southern white supremacists. In Louisiana, a group of elite businessmen, uh, politicians, and Confederate Army veterans formed a group called the Crescent City White League. The Crescent City White League 
uh, was basically the Louisiana version of the Ku Klux Klan. But since Louisiana is always fancy, New Orleans always tried to do things special, they had to have a different kind of name. But it's the same, um, same paramilitary type of group that was all about terrorism against black bodies, black people. Uh, the White League murdered, it said, some 3,000 black people during Reconstruction. That means about 300 a year, that's only almost one a day. One of the most infamous massacres they pulled off was at the Battle of Liberty Place in 1874, when they attempted to overthrow the Reconstruction era government. The governor at the time was William P. Kellogg, a northern transplant, and the lieutenant governor was PBS Pinchback, who was a black man also, who was the one to replace Oscar Dunn. During the mass massacre, the white men, um, the white league murdered 13 black and white men, both military officers and civilians. About two decades later, in 1891, after they pulled off this massacre, they would erect a monument to this act of domestic terrorism. In case there was any doubt as to the nature of this monument's purpose, in 1932, a qualifying plaque was placed on the monument stating that the national election of 1876, quote, recognized white supremacy in the state and gave us our state. The results of that election were undoubtedly influenced by the violent, the violent force applied only two years prior. So when they had that election in 1876, trust and believe that the law changed because of their violent terrorism on the ground. Um, as one of my elders says in community, the law changes because of the people power, not the other way around. Unfortunately, in this case, it was uh, evil power um, organized by white supremacist terrorists. Um, by 1906, a mine will be put up to Jefferson Davis, who was president of the Confederacy. And by 1950, one will be constructed to PGT Beauregard, who was a lieutenant in the Confederacy and the only actual member of the Confederacy represented by a major statue in New Orleans, who was actually from New Orleans. Everybody else wasn't even from here, um, for the most part, except for one other we'll talk about later. The aforementioned four are but a small fraction of the well over 100 symbols of the white supremacy in the city of New Orleans. Now, let's just think about for a second what Dr. Wilson said about symbols, right? She says that they are to pass on messages to support the origin, identity, and survival of a people. And it's through that lens that we have to understand the hypocrisy of erecting, much less sustaining, white supremacist symbols in a city like New Orleans. These symbols obviously don't represent the majority black citizens of our city, much less an origin that we need to identify with for survival. On the contrast, if what you seek is the destruction of a people, then there's nothing better, nothing better than to uh, torment them with the symbols of their degradation, enslavement, and genocide. That systemic inequity that New Orleans suffers on a daily basis is a testament to the slave state that these monuments seek to maintain. We've historically ranked them on the lowest in education in the U.S., among the highest in unemployment, poverty, and crime, but with a prison capital of all the world's history, incarcerating more people per capita than any other city or state in the world. Our biggest uh, prison is called Angola, named after the plantation that it was once called during slavery, also Angola. The legacy of slavery has preserved itself in our city, changing very little but its namesake, and its practices yet remain the same. The legacy of oppression by way of symbols has not been accepted without resistance, however. This was a statue to a guy named John McDonough. John McDonough was one of the biggest slavers in New Orleans, if not the country at large. He had plantations from New Orleans to Baltimore. Um, after his death, he left endowments to public education, so his namesake is all over uh, schools in the city and even schools in Baltimore. There used to be a tradition uh, called Founders Day. And the first time it was actually put into, or when it was put into was in 1954. A group of black pre preachers organized a protest. And basically they did so because Founders Day was an annual ritual where black students were made to stand in the hot sun 
and wait their turn behind white students to lay wreaths at the foot of a statue to John McDonough, one of the largest slavers in history, as I said. So the black church protested against that and they put an end to it. That was one of the earliest documented successful, uh, well, not so much documented, but one of the ones that we know of throughout oral history that was successful in ending a white supremacist ritual around one of these statues. 20 years later, 1972, the New Orleans chapter of the Black Panthers faced off against former KKK Grand Wizard David Duke at the Robert E. Lee Monument and sent Duke running away. A year later, the Black Church uh, picked back up the torch as Reverend Marie Galatis recruited legendary civil rights activist and state senator Avery C. Alexander to organize for monument removal. Five years later, and this is where it gets a little closer to home in terms of my own organizing, um, Fellow Take Him Down NOLA lead organizing co-founder Malcolm Suber, he would join the fight as he moved down here from South Carolina. And through public protests, forums, and civic engagement, he and many others uh, fought well into the 90s. And by 1993, he and his cohorts had seen major victories in the form of several school names changing from Confederate era racists like Governor William C. Claiborne, um, and not even just Confederate era, because William Claiborne was, I'm pretty sure, way before the Confederacy. But white supremacist period from Governor William C. Claiborne, who's got a major street here, to Governor Francis T. Nichols. Um, and they changed those names to significant contributors to African-American history, like Frederick Douglass, Langston Hughes, which is a school right around the corner from my house. Um, by 2006, some 26 school names would be changed. Another huge victory from that era was the passage of a city ordinance declaring all public symbols that represented the oppression of a people to be public nuisances. By that definition, half the city would be up for reupholstering. Re so by 2015, when Mayor Mitch Landrieu enters this conversation, he used this very uh, ordinance to call for the removal of four Confederate monuments uh, in the city without ever citing the activists like Malcolm and his comrade here, Leon Waters, that had, um, that had created the ordinance. But long before Mitch jumped into the conversation, I actually went to a lecture held by Malcolm and Leon, and they changed my worldview forever. It was about 10 years ago, 2010, when I saw the, the map of my city, um, gridded in the name of all of our antebellum oppressors and white supremacist oppressors. And when that happened, my blood got to boiling. It's like, you know, a, a light, just a fire went off in my head. Because I came to this city in 93 as a young boy coming out of Brooklyn, very different culture at the time. You know what I mean? This is um, the era of Spike Lee, do the right thing if you need some context for that. And so it's a lot of Pan-African, Afrocentric and pro-Black messaging. And then I came to a city where you know um, the messaging and the rap and the hip hop was very different. It was very much the opposite of that. It was songs like Give Me Some Heroin Baby and things of this nature. I didn't know much about um, New Orleans infrastructure as a port for heroin. I didn't know how that was connected to um, the, the criminality here or the poverty rates that caused the criminality for the 424 murders to occur the year that I moved here, the 389 a year after that. And so when they showed me this stuff, it really illuminated for me where our oppression in our city came from because I was like, oh snap. They literally sat up here and, and, and praised, venerated, gave a literal pedestal to the people that put us in this condition. And those same people create the legislation that controls the institutions that control our lives. So how can black lives matter if our lives are defined by people who said they don't and literally write that into existence? And so that was a, that was a light bulb moment for me to say the least. But as much as I thought I would look around the room and everybody would be feeling the same way, people were saying stuff like, Oh, but it's a part of history. It needs to be preserved. They say stuff like, um, you know, just passive and, and ambiguous about this. Meanwhile, I'm like, well, I stood up and actually said to the room, 
um, our military that our tax dollars support just got paid, right? It has the biggest budget, by the way, and all of uh, the biggest slice of the US budget, just like I'll get to later when I say prisons, cops, and jails have the biggest slice of most of our local budgets, right? That's why people are talking about abolishing defunding police. But this military culture is very connected once again to a white supremacy culture. That's why I started this off talking about patriarchy as an undergirding uh, aspect of this, if not a root of it, because it's patriarchy that leads to a, a militaristic state. Um, and it's ultimately what gives context for uh, these type of divisions like race-based oppression and hatred to, to, to substantiate and to support all of the ways that you're trying to oppress people so that you can bloodlet them for their resources. When I, when I got that um, messaging from them and I said what I did, a few people um, agreed with it, but there was a lot of silence in the room. It would take like another five years before uh, my community and the planet at large is ready to make those connections and act on them. So fast forward to about 2014, November 30th, um, we entered the Black Lives Matter movement. So just like the Civil Rights Movement, which was literally um, spawned the baptized in the blood of Emmett Till, 14 year old who was murdered by a racist white supremacist in Mississippi when he was visiting there from his native Chicago. This happens in 1955, but now uh, what happens, I'm not sure if I got the year right, y'all fact check me on that, but it happens in the 50s for sure. And here we are 60 years later and it's happening again. History's repeating itself and we're standing at the foot of this symbol to white supremacist history that helps substantiate and perpetuate that history repeating itself. So when we did a march for Mike Brown, who was murdered uh, by another white supremacist racist, this one in, in uh, uniform with a badge on, a cop named Darren Wilson out in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, what we did was stood up in solidarity with him and uh, the movement, the national movement that was marching for Mike Brown's um, uh, justice since his, his killer was not indicted. We were doing that also on the heels of Trayvon Martin having been murdered by George Zimmerman only two summers earlier. When I say we, I'm referring very directly to an organization that um, I was part of the creation of here called BYP 100 NOLA. We were the first Southern branch of it. Um, it's the Black Youth Project 100, um, directly affiliated on the most, um, I guess, quote unquote, official organizing bodies of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and when we did that action, that rally for Mike Brown, we did it intentionally under Robbie Lee's statute because we wanted to draw the connections once again between black lives and the matter of them, the value of our lives and the state sanctioned violence that has already been given a stamp of approval by these symbols themselves. So once again, how can black lives matter if we are celebrating the people that literally said we don't? And um, Robbie Lee had very direct quotes and the direct narratives about the things that he did to his enslaved people, um, brutal, horrific, torturous uh, treatment. And, you know, this is what this guy's known for and, we, and this guy's celebrated in our city. No wonder when the circumstances we are. Um, six months later after that action, we went on to do another action, um, a Confederate flag burning, part of a, a movement called 13 Flag Funerals, uh, spearheaded by an artist named John Sims, shouts out to him. We took on the New Orleans um, uh, action for that and we burnt the Confederate flag right there in front of Robert E. Lee. And it served to be very prescient because once again, this stuff hits the national radar not long thereafter. A racist white supremacist named Dylan Roof about a month, no, two, three weeks after we did this, walks into, Dylan Roof walks into a black church in South Carolina, murders nine of its members. His social media page would show him holding guns next to Confederate flags, making promises of a race war. After that, the entire country started to respond to racist symbols like never before. 
assisted it, hopefully most of us know, named Bree Newsom, performed a heroic act of uh, climbing up the South Carolina um, State Capitol flagpole and pulling that wretched, disgusting symbol down. And of course, that um, kicked off the national movement even more. And a take them down hashtag emerged. So as we were already doing this work, we decided to tether it to um, a movement that was already uh, taking national stride. And so we called ourselves Take Them Down Nova. And on July 17th, um, we were born. And that's when our, our coalition came into being. We are multicultural, intergenerational, uh, Black-led multiracial, intergenerational um, coalition comprised of activists, artists, educators, and working class people committed to the removal of all symbols of white supremacy in New Orleans as a part of a broader push for racial and economic justice. So you hear me talk not just about symbols, but the symbols reflect the system. And so when we talk about the symbols, we're talking about the racial, socio-cultural component. When we talk about the system, we're talking about the way that a capitalist system um, consolidates all of those different facets of oppression and locks them in, literally through the oppression of working class people. And of course, that's harder on black and brown working class people because slavery and the genocide of native indigenous folks meant that we got um, a 300 year backlog on our oppression. You know, um, working class white folks had a 300 year head start against us. So um, um, after kicking off, uh, taking down NOLA, we went through a, a series of actions, um, very intentional actions because when Mitch Landry introduced that, uh, that notion of wanting to remove four white supremacist symbols, he only highlighted four out of 17. And there were, of course, endless street names, school names, what have you that he didn't highlight. And he, once he introduced it to the city council, they uh, countered with saying, we'll have a 60 day uh, period of public discussion. So during that 60 day period, we got busy. We went out to um, uh, Robert E. Lee's statue. We projected some of those quotes and information about him that I just told y'all about in terms of his treatment of his enslaved people. We held our first action in front of Andrew Jackson. We called this an action Jackson. Uh, we did it knowing that we wanted to expand the conversation to the other symbols that he had not highlighted. I highlighted for y'all earlier the four that he did, which were Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, PGT Beauregard, and the statue of the Crescent City White Leagues uh, monument called the Liberty Monument. We call it the White Supremacist Monument. Anyway, we did these actions, two of them before the city council hearing, which happened um, summer 2015. Um, and we were very intentional about getting these kind of rooms packed by, you know, promoting the actions we did. As the city continued to have its conversations, we continued to have ours. We did our own forums, community forums, inviting folks out to voice their opinions on what was going on. And then when the 60 days came and went, as it's prone to do, as it's apt to do, and just take this little uh, nugget, all my organizers out there, activists out there, if you're seasoned in this work, you already know how it, how it works. But if you're new to the game and you know, um, the government and the petty bourgeois class is designed to uh, temper the agency and the fire and the, and the, and the righteous anger of uh, working class folks when we rise up against our oppression. And so what they do is they co-opt our conversations. They uh, delay, delay, delay. And as Martin Luther King said, justice delayed is justice denied. And if we don't get busy in the streets and make noise, then they will deny it and act like we never said what we did. Um, you can see that in things like that we even succeed at getting, like the Voting Rights Act of 1964, things of this nature. There's constantly ways that uh, the ruling white supremacist capitalist class has tried to peel back our efforts, our gains rather. And the less um, obvious suppressors um, who quite often complicit with these, these, these kind of agendas on the left, the so-called left, 
um, will quite often um, bait and switch us. And why? Why do they do that? Well, that's another conversation once again about capitalism and who controls their decision making. Um, but we were very clear about what's going on. So we got back in the street. Um, you'll see this guy right here when I talked about the Crescent City White League. His name is Edie White, Edward Douglas White. Um, the infamous Plessy versus Ferguson decision, which was um, the decision that established the separate but equal laws from 1906 all the way until the civil rights movement peeled that stuff back in the 60s. Uh, that was a law that he helped pass as a Supreme Court justice. And we put a white hood on his head because this guy was literally a member of the Crescent City White League that murdered us with impunity all throughout the Reconstruction era. Not only us, but then fought directly against the United States itself to um, you know, uh, preserve slavery and white supremacy in the South. And just to show you how, again, how the right and the left can be complicit with each other's agendas because of the power of state terror coupled with capitalist power, uh, this guy still goes on to become a Supreme Court justice, even though he's um, you know, guilty of, of murdering, of being a part of trying to overthrow the state, overthrow the United States itself, not to mention the part that uh, people care even less about, which is all the black people he was uh, instrumental in helping kill. So we put this up here to highlight him. We also highlighted Andrew Jackson. And then we went to the founder of our city, so-called founder. He's the Columbus of New Orleans. His name is Bienville, uh, Pierre Lemoyne de, de Bienville, uh, to be specific. This statue is so egregious because it literally highlights um, a native indigenous person. And you can see this person slumped over in defeat while he's standing up, you know, proud and patriarchal and tall. So we identified it real clear for people. This is the guy that brought slavery here, 1719. And this is the people who were, these are the people of, uh, our, of, of, our, of our space that we live in, um, who held this space down for thousands of years before anybody else showed up, all right? So you're talking about native indigenous people here of the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Homa, um, so many different people I can't uh, even call back um, immediately, but uh, there were at least 30 different groups of native indigenous folks who occupied this space for some 3,000 years. And it was called Bubanchaland. It was called Bubanchaland because that means the gathering of, of many tongues and cultures. And that's what New Orleans always was before it was named after the Duke of Orleans. And, you know, this is the respect that we don't show. This is the disrespect we do show to the people that preserved our land. And Quietus Kept gave a lot of the uh, culture that the French stole from them and now serves back as global culture. A lot of the foods that we love down here, that y'all come down here to New Orleans to eat, uh, have African and indigenous roots. And so we wanted to identify some of that, expand that conversation. Mind you, both of these, all three of these monuments are still standing. So, you know, as much as we've had success, we still got work to do. Um, we left a little something to commemorate those who um, were murdered in the Battle at Liberty Place by the Crescent City White League and give some context to that. And so all that happens in November of 2015, and it made its, its, its noise because about a week later, the city issues a statement saying that they're finally going to revisit this issue. They did. And as we know, when we fight, we win. And I wish I could say happily ever after, but um, directly after that, since Reverend Marie Galatis was very excited, you know, seeing her dreams come true. She literally used to dream about these Miami's coming down, and now she's seeing it happen all over the world. So she, her prophetic vision proved true. But long story short, um, the opposition filed a lawsuit. We had to go to the courts to monitor the process because they were trying to peel back our win directly after the win happened. We stayed in the street, kept doing more actions. We still stood strong that day, thousands deep in the street. Um, we did this because, you know, things were still held up in court and no action was being taken. Besides the fact, we were still trying to prove the point that we need more than four to come down. We need all 17 to come down. Finally, they started to come down. So that's the Liberty Place monument. 
Um, it came down April 24th, 2017, Jefferson Davis. He came down the, the, the next week. After that was PGT Beauregard. He came down directly after that. And then on Malcolm X's birthday, May 19th, we got the Big Kahuna, Robert E. Lee came down. That's, that's take him down in a, in a nutshell. Um, but like I said, we got four down. We still got, we had at the time 13 to go. I'm gonna give y'all a quick update. This is us still taking it to the streets as recently as a couple of years ago, back when the movement was starting to subside a little bit and people stopped paying attention to what we talk about. We never stopped. We kept moving, kept marching. So I'm going to um, go off and segue from there to give y'all a little um, update on what's happened in this George Floyd moment. In this George Floyd moment, as y'all might have noticed, I know Seattle's been getting busy, getting popping. So much love and solidarity, respect to y'all and the ways that y'all been moving. Within the George Floyd moment, people hit the streets like every day for a week. And we spearheaded all of that organizing. We got thousands of people in the street. And we constantly kept bringing the taking down issues to the front, to the front of the conversation. And so people got inspired by that. We said, you know, take the power in your own hands. We're not gonna wait for the state to give us what is just due. When we do wait for the state, half the time we end up getting killed by them. And that's exactly why we gotta take justice back in our own hands. John McDonough, the guy that I talked about earlier, I was none too joyed to see John pulled down by uh, the people here in New Orleans. And then this other guy, Charles Didier Jew, who's the only other uh, white supremacist from New Orleans who's actually, um, uh, on, a, on a statue here. So that happened. We put out a little graphic to let people know where we're at. Seven down, 10 to go. We still got more work to do, but we're excited about this pre-revolutionary moment where folks are moving because we understand it's about more than symbols. It's about systems as well. We live in a city that gives 63% of our budget to cops, jails, prisons, reactive measures, and only 1% to job development, 3% to children and families. Now, I'm no businessman, but I know a little something, something, because I majored it in college. And last I heard, if you make an investment, you want a return on your investment. Now, we wonder why we're the number one carceral state in the world. Well, if you don't put any money into people getting jobs and access, you don't put any money, three cents of every dollar, into feeding families that are already living 53% beneath the poverty rate, but you put 63 cents out of every dollar into locking us up, well, it doesn't take a rocket science to see why we're the number one carceral state in the world. And it also doesn't take you know, a therapist or a psychologist to realize the state don't love us. And they put us in these positions on purpose for capitalist greed and for uh, continued oppression. Out of Take Him Down, Nola's work have grown three other uh, powerful coalitions that we work in solidarity with. We are them, they are us for the most part. Um, the New Orleans Workers Group that spearheaded those uh, actions that happened in the wake of George Floyd's uh, lynching. Um, New Orleans People's Assembly, who's been doing work to get the residents of Gordon Plaza who've been living on toxic soil for 30 years, right? And we believe that since Black Lives Matter, while they yet still live, we don't need to wait for one more person to die of cancer over there. And was, I guess, the second most cancerous uh, community in the country, if not the world. And so we work in solidarity with our comrades there. Last but not least, in the Wallace Hospitality Workers Alliance who's been working for livable wage, benefits, and workers' rights for the 100,000 hospitality workers in the city. That's one out of almost every five citizens works in hospitality, upholds the tourism industry, the richest in the world, made almost $9 billion last year, and yet half of us live in poverty. That's not by mistake, that's by design. So we continue to take these steps. And in the wake of all these steps, what do we get? Once again, the response of our state is, uh, they need a committee to figure out if the slave owners were racist. So they recently put together a quote unquote renaming committee where they're gonna try to figure out which street names need to be fixed. Taking down those, put that information out for years. And our people know what it is, and that's why we have 
all these people that you see in the streets know how to flood those city council meetings with uh, our demands, which are finish the job, release the timeline for the immediate removal of all remaining symbols of white supremacy, including street names, school and public property names and monuments. Number two, follow a community driven process where the vanguards of the work can be in communication with the community and you know bring out what we want to see replaced in uh, former street names and school names. And obviously that would be us. We've been doing that work. Our ordinance now, which demands the um, definition go from Confederate monuments to all symbols of white supremacy. George Washington, yes, our founder of this country was a white supremacist as well. Definitely Columbus, Bienville, anybody else who qualifies needs to go. Last but not least, abolish the police. We know you're not gonna do that overnight, but you can start with flipping the budget. Our budget is like we said, 63% to prisons, cops, jails, and reactive measures. I bet you if the people in New Orleans had that money in their pockets from all of the labor that they exploited for, instead of going to the, the uh, apparatus to lock us up, then you wouldn't even have crime because you wouldn't have poverty. And so these are solvable situations and we just need to put that consciousness, that political consciousness into people's hands for them to make those moves. I just want to close out with this quote from James Baldwin. He said one more thing about history. He said, an invented past can never be used. It cracks and crumbles under the pressure of life like clay in a dry season. Brothers, sisters, siblings, welcome to the dry season of white supremacist capitalism. Now is the time to crack and crumble that invented past, one symbol, one symptom of its greater system at a time. That was Michael Questmore of Take em Down NOLA, an organization advocating for the removal of white supremacy symbols. Moore spoke at a virtual event hosted by Project Pilgrimage. Project Pilgrimage encourages communities to confront our shared legacy of racism through immersive experiences. To learn more about Project Pilgrimage, go to projectpilgrimage.org. KPCS is not like any other radio station I've came across. It gives voice to local people. You never hear stories that are broadcast on KBCS on any other radio station in the area. My name is Elena from Maple Leaf area in Seattle, and I love listening to 91.3 KBCS Music and Ideas. Next is Eleanor Chang Stuckey, a local youth activist who was also a Project Pilgrimage intern at the time of this recording. Chang Stuckey speaks about Confederate symbols in Washington state. So it would probably surprise you to know that there are currently three Confederate monuments within Washington state, and one of them was right here in Seattle. Um, so the first monument I'd like to introduce is a highway marker in Ridgefield, Washington, um, off the I-5. This monument consists of two Confederate flags with two stone markers honoring Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Um, these markers used to sit on public land until 2007 when the city voted to remove them. Um, that's when a group called the Sons of the Confederate Veterans brought them to a privately owned park in Ridgefield. Um, the Sons of Confederate Veterans have communicated that they're prepared to protect the monuments against damage and will step up security with armed guards at the park. This monument has been frequently vandalized, still the monument remains. The second monument is located in Richland, Washington. Uh, there's a street titled Lee Boulevard named after Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Um, and in addition to this, there is a sign honoring and acknowledging Robert E. Lee across from a local high school. 
The placard details his life and historical moments and ends with, he had become a potent symbol of regional pride and dignity and is still held in the same regard today. The sign sits on private property, but there have been calls for Lee Boulevard to be renamed. Um, this has been met with some resistance from the community of Richland. Um, this last monument used to be in Seattle's own volunteer park. The United Confederate Veterans Memorial was a monument in Seattle's Lakeview Cemetery. It was erected by the United Daughters of the Confederacy in 1926. It was constructed of quartz from Stone Mountain, the United States largest Confederate monument located in Georgia. Um, this monument was toppled on July 4th, following years of vandalization and calls for its removal by local activists, Seattle citizens, and government officials. That was Eleanor Cheng Stuckey, a youth activist speaking about Confederate symbols in Washington state. Special thanks to Project Pilgrimage for the audio from that event. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.